Welcome to We Shadows, the podcast about design and technical theater in the Twin Cities. I'm your announcer, Anita Kelling. In this episode, Liaza Barron sat down with costume designer and Nimbus Theater Company member, Andrea M. Gross. This conversation took place on December 18th, 2020. We apologize for the audio inconsistencies in this episode. We struggled with the limitations of our equipment and the inherent issues of recording over the internet. We hope it doesn't distract from the incredible conversation. Andrea, thank you for coming um, to our little podcast. Um, I would like to know you um, have been working in the Twin Cities, but you work mostly as a costume designer. Is that correct? It is true. I work. I trained and work as a costume designer. I also generally work at a level where I'm building things myself. Okay. Can you explain that to people? So like what a costume designer and what building might be for said costume designer? Um, I never give the shortest answer, but the shortest answer to what I do is, uh, (laughs) I make up clothes for imaginary people. Um, the next sort of layer of way that I explain what I do to folks who don't, uh, move in our industry or think about things the way that we do is that I offer actors and directors a toolbox of ways to build a character. Um, so that's been a really great way to work in the scene here in the Twin Cities. I'm a company member with Nimbus and all the work we make is devised. Uh, I did my first piece with them. They were my Twin Cities debut in 2005. And um, that was a scripted piece, but in most recent years, we've only made new work. And so that's turned out to inform the way that I design a lot of other things too, when they even when they aren't new. So a designer um, acquaints themselves with a story and that can mean a bunch of different things. It, traditionally, it means you read the script like three times. Uh, And then you sit down with a director, right? And there's like a whole formulaic thing you might have been taught in school about how this structure operates. (laughs) Um, But in other instances, I'm immersing myself in subject matter. Um, The first question I always ask a director when I sit down with them to decide if we're going to work together is why do you want to tell this story right now? Um, So that has a lot to do then with how I'm thinking about the ways the characters will present themselves and the ways I can support that story process. So that's how I see my design work. Um, Traditionally, there's a research period which could encompass any number of things and a drawing things and making decisions part of it. And then acquiring those things can be your job or it can be any number of other people's job depending on the scale of the organization that you're working in. Um, So for me, I... That research process might be historical research. It might have to do with an era and a place and a particular family, or it might be wandering through thrift stores and getting ideas about textures and colors and interesting things that have something to do with the story we're telling. It's a huge gamut. Um, And to be honest, I would say I work in the latter form a lot more lately. Um, As a possible aside, another person you should consider interviewing uh would be trevor bowen he's Um, on our list and actually you should interview him on his on your own with him but he and i have had a bunch of conversations in the aisles of thrift stores when we're both doing this about (laughs) how our process works and 
awesome. the two of us and Barb Portinga, who I'll get to because you have a question about mentors, um, we would have a really interesting conversation about that process because we do it similarly and differently. And it's pretty cool. I've learned a lot from both of them. Awesome. <laughs> um, so I would say that is the difference. So you have somebody who designs something and somebody who executes something, uh, which can be making a pattern from scratch or working off of an existing commercial pattern. Um, it might involve making a practice round to see how it functions and what it needs to do in rehearsal. Uh, and then making a final garment. Um, but also it can be a lot of alterations and uh, less from scratch work. Um, and so, yeah, and again, that will translate back to how many people the organization hires to do all those things. Yeah, if they've got the manpower or human power, I guess, to be able to do that. Resources. Yeah. yeah. Human resource. Uh, yeah. Makes sense. Um, how did you get started working in theater? Um, and why did you kind of choose to do that? Was there a, a beginning or did it just kind of stumble into your life? <laughs> I, I grew up in a suburb of the Bay Area in California where there was a woman who ran summer musical theater camps. Huh. Um, and she did them during the school year, too. She ran a dance studio um and produced shows in the fall and in the spring and then in the summer they did two one with older kids and one with younger kids and then the kids who were in the older show generally ran crew for the younger show okay so that was kind of the first time i worked backstage i was on stage with her company maybe like three times before the age of 15 um it was fun but it was a camp thing that made it fun um and then being in charge of stuff backstage was uh, much more to my liking <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I also had a really awesome opportunity in high school. The public high school I went to had a theater company that freshmen and sophomores took classes in as beginning and intermediate acting, but it might include all kinds of other stuff. And then the juniors and seniors ran the company and we had an advisor who kept us from like running it into the ground. And I think in, you know, nearly 30 years hindsight, I can say did a lot more for us than we really understood, but we had a lot of ownership and a lot of agency over it. And I was the technical director there. Um, I thought I was going to be a lighting designer and I went to college and took a job in the costume shop. And that first summer I came home, I wanted to take all the buttons in the house off and sew them back on. And I was like, Oh, I guess I'm not going to be a lighting designer, um, which was probably a tremendous relief to the man who taught my first year lighting class in college. Um, <laughs> like no please don't please don't uh, although I mean again like with no no disrespect to this man who was was brilliant in the way that he was trained uh we don't necessarily work like that anymore right like do you assume that a designer knows all the ins and outs of electricity <laughs> maybe you do in lighting I don't know maybe that's different but like we don't assume that a costume designer yeah. can operate a sewing machine there are plenty who don't um yeah my laptop just told me my connection is unstable that's cute (laughs) um so yeah that's that's how I got here um I took a job in the costume shop and I never really left um I went to undergrad in the South Bay at Santa Clara University I spent three years working uh first at the opera and then at the ballet in the South Bay before I went back to grad school and I did that in Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, which um, 
is a completely different program now. Like it's, we can skip talking about it because the faculty's turned over completely and the program yes. runs completely differently. And um, for me, it's more about like, I went to Illinois because they offered me a scholarship and like yeah. treated me like this was a thing people did for a job, which I'm not sure I fully believed yet. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was not necessarily the best place for me to learn the craft, but it definitely fostered a community that supported me really deeply since then. So I was, you know, a net net neutral maybe experience. Um, And I came to the Twin Cities uh, because I took a job in 2004 as the costume shop supervisor at Theater Lahamadu in Alexandria, uh, which at the time was still being run by St. Cloud State as their theater department's summer program with like Mm -hmm. a company of students and uh I guess we probably qualified as young adults mid-20s adults running shops and um it was awesome it was the most amazing place I'd ever been Mm -hmm. it was the most like I left Illinois that summer I had never done summer stock I had never managed a costume shop I had never been to Minnesota and I just, and I just like put all the stuff on the list that they sent me into the trunk of my car and drove away. I was like, I don't know. I guess this is what I'm doing this summer. It was super out of character for me. I was very yeah. much a like color coded and alphabetized human being. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, that summer was really magical in a bunch of ways. Um, yeah. And led to connections that like 15 years later are still totally viable ways to like relate in the arts and also not in the arts just to have that community around you. So it's lovely. Um, they told me I would always work. The professional actors who came up to take some of the roles in those shows, uh, were all like hoarding their vacation time of their day jobs, but all ran theater companies of their own, um, (laughs) in the mid two thousands in the twin cities when the companies outnumbered the seats by like three times or something. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, they told me I would always work. They did not say I would always get paid. Um, but I did. That first year from 2004 to 2005, I designed 11 shows in 12 months, and one of them was an unpaid gig. That's and it was like good. a real choice yeah. that I made to do, and I totally don't regret it. Yeah. It was super fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, sometimes you got to take those ones that are, like, fun. If As long as you can pay off all the bills with all the other ones. One or two that's like, that's not going to pay for more than my parking, maybe. (laughs) If that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I had a a small inheritance that covered my rent that year. I feel like Mm -hmm. it's important to like name that. And I was embarrassed to talk about it for a long time because it gave me a level of privilege that a lot of other people don't have. But in that first year, my rent and my health insurance were covered. And everything I earned was above and beyond that. Okay. Um, which was not sustainable beyond that one year. And then I took a faculty position down at Gustavus Adolphus College. And I spent four years down in St. Peter. Um, at first commuting from the suburbs to St. Peter and then commuting from St. Peter to my life on the weekends. Um, <laughs> the rest of it, yeah. But, yeah. I mean, in a bunch of ways, I consider those four years on that faculty as, like, my tertiary degree. You know, I learned a whole bunch of other stuff that you don't get experience with other ways. And um, 
communication skills and ways to think about your own craft when you're teaching it to someone else, even as you're trying to do it. Like uh-huh. I've recently become a, a little enamored with the image of uh, building the boat as we sail it. Which yeah, is it does kind of feel that way. Actually, <laughs> which is actually how my kid's first grade teacher talks about distance learning. Oh it's yeah, like, we're sense. building the boat while we while we run in it. Well, it's while we're, we're just, trying to keep it afloat at the same yep, time. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, oh, that's a really comforting image to me somehow. Because I mean, that feels like most of my creative <laughs> career right there. <laughs> I was recently asked to join a committee uh, to talk about a future architecture space that three groups will be sharing, and most of the people. Uh, in the group that I'm a part of don't really have a strong visual background and can't really wrap their heads around this sur- survey they were sent by the architects oh, I wanted okay. my help with. And finally I said to someone, I was like, okay, this is asking you to imagine things in ways you can't because you don't know what the resources are. Like it's Im- asking you to imagine a thing that's never been without yeah. having any idea if you can pay for it. And so you don't know how to commit to it. And I was like, that's, I do that for a living. <laughs> Yeah, let me help. I sit at a table with people. We imagine a world that currently doesn't exist. Yeah, we are generally unaware of what resources we're going to be able to throw at that world. Like we we've done it enough now. I feel like I'm at a point in my career where like I know what my toolbox is, and some of that is people I can rely on, and some of that is stuff that I have, and others are like, you know, it's just skills and things that I know. Um. So you know, you know what your resources you are, time. you just haven't decided how to allocate them yet. Yeah. And you have to still imagine, like, the most wonderful version. Yeah. Yeah, you got to figure out what is the, what is this version, and then we can come back down to what reality lets us do later. Um, or even, so how do we accomplish that version with what we have? Like, what is it about that version? Well, that version makes you feel a certain way. Okay, yeah. well, if we're not going to accomplish that feeling by actually shooting off a firework inside the theater, how are we going to? Like, I used to work how with somebody. I used to work with a lovely human being who I miss very much. He's still on the faculty down at Gustavus, Henry McCarthy, who's a director. And he used to say, I'm going to come to this first design meeting and I'm going to tell you that I want an elephant suspended on a helium balloon. And I know I cannot have an elephant suspended on a helium balloon, but I need to talk about the elephant suspended on a helium balloon until we figure out how we're going to accomplish that without doing that. Yeah. How can we do the same feeling without an elephant? How can we accomplish it without doing it? That particular language is just really interesting to me. My professor had a similar thing, but it was an elephant on a toothpick. So some reason it's always an elephant. His was an elephant that had to stand on a really big toothpick. I don't remember why, but I remember him saying that many a times. Similar, maybe they went to similar schools. I don't know. <laughs> um, so you said that you kind of came to Minnesota because you took a job. Was there ever any time that you like decided that the Twin Cities would be your artistic home? Or was that kind of just like everything just kept coming? So you're like, oh, I'll stay here. <laughs> A little bit more like that. Um, yeah. One of my former professors from grad school sent me a listing from uh, an academic job website with the body of the email. I feel like this tells you everything about his personality. It was, um, <laughs> Dear Andrea, I presume you've already seen this. <laughs> job posting for within 120 miles of where you live. Um, no, no. In fact, I had not. Uh <laughs> But that was a really, there were some things about that that were pretty charmed. And, um, and of course there were things about it that were toxic because I think any work situation that, uh, extends for any amount of time will become that way. Um, it's, uh, 
it's not inevitably toxic to a damaging place. And this wasn't either. It's it just inevitably brings up ways in which we wish we could stretch that we can't. And then, you know, humans yeah. are kind of garbage at taking care of some of those emotions. <laughs> Many humans. I think all of us probably. Um so it was like a really charmed working situation where like there was no reason to think that a group of six people with advanced degrees in theater would get along as well as we genuinely did most of the time. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, there were ways in which there was no way we weren't also going to push each other's buttons. <laughs> Cause we're human. Right. <laughs> uh, we don't all think the same way, but two, that's kind of what I mean when I say, I think of it as a tertiary degree, that time of teaching and learning and, um and building the boat while it's in motion okay um was really it was formative for me in great ways yeah makes sense i think it would be really i think it's good for all designers to spend some time with other people building their stuff which is probably not that all right that would be a goal i still have for my career is to be able to send your stuff off as a freelance designer, I would like to work at a level where I turn drawings over and I'm involved in the making process, but I'm not the one personally responsible for all of it. Okay. Um, and that doesn't happen unless I hire the whole crew. Like it can happen at Park Square when they've had a labor budget. Yeah, but more often you don't get a labor budget with your You designs. don't generally get a labor budget, exactly, <laughs> at the level that I've generally worked at. Yeah, you, you have to pull it from your regular budget if you need a custom-made something or whatever. Makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think there is something really useful about that. So I was running the costume shop at Davis as well, which meant I was uh, not... I wasn't teaching very many kids to sew who never had. Okay. Um, but I had some work-study students, I guess, who had a lot less machine experience than others. and um, And so teaching people how to do the thing that you've designed helps you design better. That was a that really interesting, yeah. that was a really interesting process for me to, uh, I resisted designing down to what I perceived their skill set to be. And I had to find a way to make it work in the middle. So it's that same accordion we were just talking about. Yeah. Where it's like, no, that makes sense. You can stretch all the resources or you can conserve all the resources, but how do you move that accordion back and forth between those things? Yeah that gets everybody's everybody's boat is rising on the same tide. Yeah, that makes sense. I find I find I design um when I have to build myself, I design within my own limitation. When I when I get to send my design to someone else, I don't tend to put that limitation on there because I trust that they can do better than I can. <laughs> like you probably know what you're doing and if not, I can help you figure it out. And I'm cool with working that out, but I do feel like I design at a different level when I can send my stuff to someone else than when I do it myself. And I feel like that's, yeah, that's an opportunity everyone should have because I do think yeah. it changes the way you approach your work. Yeah, makes um, sense. In, in your um, years of working at either the university or growing into who you are now, did you ever have people who you like learned a lot from or were mentored by or was that kind of like a, everybody was your mentor and you're a mentee of everyone? Absolutely, <laughs> I would say that... Um, I had a gig in 2006, right before I took the job at Gustavus uh, at Chanhassen Dinner Theater. I was Barb Portinga's first hand on Singing in the Rain, which was a massive build. Um, and Barb and I had been like 
connected through mutual friends that whole first year I was here in town, but only met okay. once in passing. Um, and I got to this gig and, um, and we started working together and then we figured out we'd both applied for the same job at Gustavus. Oh goodness. <laughs> um, and it was a hundred percent not awkward at all. It took like oh, 30 seconds to realize if they hired her, they were not looking for me. And if they hired me, they weren't looking for her. Like just wildly different about how we approach our work. Um, and I guess I would say, so this would be then our 14th year of making stuff together. Um, Cause we've stayed closely connected in our work um, and in our lives since that time, pretty much. I would bring her down to Gustavus to, um, to be firsthand on something to teach. Like we built a ton of, uh, we built a bunch of silk dance dresses one year for the dance concert. And so mm-hmm. like being able to just give that job to her and have her have students who stitched for her, it was, it was great yeah. and good for them too. Right. Again, good for them. They to learn, learn a different point of view, a totally yeah. different way of approaching a, a situation. Um, and actually in the last year and a half, two years, um, we've started working together under the name rubble and ash on occasion. So we each design on our own too. Um, but three four shows now we've split a design fee from a company and split the budget and worked as a pair um somebody asked the first common but that's awesome um yeah you know (laughs) it's a little bit inspired by um tool and die was a company in northeast minneapolis in the early 2000s at least i actually i should look it up i don't know how long they were in business um but they worked similarly they were a design and build house uh-huh. um and then in the like 40s and 50s out of toronto there was a design house i'm so sorry i literally just had the name they worked under it's <laughs> gonna come back to me hang on a second um names are hard they were a lighting designer, a costume designer, and a scenic designer, but they'd all trained as sonographers and they worked as a name and you never knew which one of them had done which component. Oh, okay. They just like didn't, it was three they women. They didn't ever, they was like, we always are, they just, just were, this is the name this, you get. And... It'll come back to me. I'm going to text somebody on the side about it and ask. Motley. <laughs> Motley. Motley. <laughs> the, okay. the group was called Motley. Yeah. Um, so we talked about that a little bit. We were working at the time on a show set in the Antebellum South. Um, making early Victorian clothing together. And I was technically the designer and I realized that I, she would ask me questions about how a garment should finish. And I would design based on her questions kind of like you stopped being able to tell where the loop completed, like who was informing whom. And so at that point we decided we would start working as a team sometimes. Um, And it's really wonderful. It's really wonderful. That's got to be awesome for you guys because, like, so often as designers, we work so, um, so much on our own. So we don't usually get to get you get creative feedback from the other people on that specific project, but we don't tend to get to work with another person who is under our same focus. So, like, I don't work with other set designers very often. So that's really got to be fun and also a different challenge. It's super fun, honestly. Um, Because when you're in a production meeting with other people, you don't generally have a ton of bandwidth. I don't work a lot of places outside of Nimbus where we're making stuff together as a team. Uh I don't feel like we have a lot of 
scope in the average production meeting to really talk to each other about stuff. I don't know. Yeah. Like we'll sit around the tech table during the last week and tell each other what we like about our work. And that's nice feedback to have, or like answer questions about why you made a certain choice. Um, but it's not the same kind of deep dive and the deep dive part of it is really, it really sustains both of us, I think. Um, so I would absolutely list Barb as a mentor. Um, I would say Rick Polinek. Um, when I first left my gig at Gustavus and came back up to the Twin Cities um, in 2010, I had two shows at Normandale Community College, and he was the scenic designer there then. He's since retired from that job. Uh-huh. I feel like Rick Polinek brings a general pleasantness to the room that is... Um, I think it's really deliberate in a way that is like a deliberate kindness Yeah, that there just isn't a ton of when we're all racing in and out of things and like trying to keep up our schedules and our boundaries and our balance boards and whatever else. I just, I really enjoy that about being in a room with him. Is that something that you would want to try to find ways to like foster more of that communication earlier in processes? I know that our, our, the way our world works right now or not right now <laughs> is tricky, but like, is that something that like if in a, in a future show you could work with the set designer more. And so you guys can have more of that cross conversation or like with the lighting or the sound designer more in a different way. Definitely. Um, and I think it's somewhat dependent on the company's structure. Uh-huh. And somewhat dependent, I mean, and respectfully, somewhat dependent on how much we're getting paid. Sometimes yeah, that makes sense. It's hard yeah. to throw six hours into a giant ideas conversation about the elephant on the helium balloon when you're only getting 250 for the whole gig or $400 for the whole gig yeah. or whatever. Like, um, so that's definitely, that's definitely a piece of it. Yeah. Like I've worked with companies who always use the same scenic designer. And so that designer is in on the conversation from the get go. And by the time I'm hired, this design is set. Yeah. The scenic stuff is on paper and done and I'm working around it. Um, And that's okay. I've done beautiful work that way, actually. Um, But I'd rather sit around with um, some beverages and have an open ended conversation about what we're doing and, how we're going to do yeah. it and what matters. Um, and the thing I love about that in that device theater process is I feel like it fosters a ton of respect for each other's disciplines. Like the project we were working on uh, that would have opened in April could have a star drop. Uh, but a star drop has traditionally been well beyond our resources. Mm-hmm. And to like work with the same group of people enough that you have enough of a commitment to the story that you're like, I will figure out a way to do less stuff so that we can, so that we can have, cause this story needs a job. My clothes don't get a star drop, but mm-hmm. you know, but they that need time we did the 1880s story. piece, my clothes were more than, you know, all the other budgets together. <laughs> so yeah. like, there's just, a, there's a way in which we're being conscious of each other's needs that really interests me. I don't like to work in a silo and I don't like to work at companies where it feels like we're being purposely siloed 
or yeah. even ignorantly siloed, even not like purposely, but just nobody thought about doing it any other way. And so yeah, nobody thought about saying we should let costumes be in on the early conversation of the set design. Yeah, right. Yeah, I feel like sometimes I'm I'm I I want to have you in the con or want to have all the different people in the conversation, but I also don't want to like overburden someone who I know we're all getting paid a certain amount. And so I'm like, if you have the bandwidth, be involved. If not, you know, whatever. Um, can you explain just a little bit what a devised piece is? Sure. For someone who might not understand what that is. And how what that really works. What I can works. do is tell you how we do it at Nimbus. I would not yeah, presume that's to say how that you that guys how do it. anybody else functions. Um, there's a lot of really cool art that gets made in town in similar fashions. Um, but I don't know how Sandbox goes about it necessarily. Or That's how, the one I've worked with. So I'm curious what's different. <laughs> others do. So we generally have an idea. We definitely have an idea at the point that we put out a casting call. And that idea might be a piece of literature or it might just be a concept. It is generally like a time setting and a basis in some story. Um, so the first piece we did in the new theater at the Crane was called the Kalevala. It was based on a Finnish folktale by the same name that is their national poetry and is connected to how Finland functions as a culture. Like it informs their culture in a way that we don't really have literature that's parallel. Um, it was also somewhat the source material for Tolkien's The Ring. So it has okay. this like mythical, there is an object, everybody wants it, but when you hold it, it can destroy you. Sort of overarching thing. Okay. We knew that we wanted to tell those stories. We knew that nobody was going to watch all 87 verses or whatever it is in the original poem. We were pretty sure there were some stories we wanted to tell. And then we wanted to choose other stories from that part to weave together and make a two hour evening of theater. And so the show is cast, I would say generally at about that point. And we do a couple of weeks of table work, very loosely finger quoted, um, which might be improv stuff. It might be research, like everybody goes home and thinks about one thing after rehearsal one night. When we come back tomorrow, we talk about it. That is almost always the actors. Um, designers oh. are welcome in the room for those things, but we're generally not available. We've got like three more shows to open before this one goes, yeah. goes up. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's space for that. And the design team is hopefully meeting once before that starts. Um, and then we do something we call an eye opener, which is sort of a play on our logo, but is a semi staged reading of whatever exists okay. at that point. We take a, and then after then the design team usually meets again as well at that point. Um, the playwright, the writer of the piece, um, who is usually one of our two artistic directors and the other one is generally directing, uh, uh -huh. that writer goes away for, uh, 10 days maybe, and writes a bunch of things, and we come back and do a four to five week rehearsal process that okay. more or less is a normal rehearsal process. The script is not finished at the first day of rehearsal, but there's a deadline two to three weeks in. Uh, and so then the design team is meeting regularly through that process and producing okay. work and ideas. But um, after the, generally around the eye-opener time, we have a conversation we call the big ideas conversation um actually internally we call it the stilts and wings conversation which is sort of a throwback to like the elephant on a toothpick we did a show yeah. once with stilts <laughs> and wings and how they would impact various things could have been discussed sooner and so now we have uh, it as I a see. like opener <laughs> conversation it's the like not... everything at the wall like what if 
Yeah, let's know? not bring in stilts the day before tech opens. Right, right. <laughs> let's because, have that conversation now. Makes right, sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, what if we had a body of water in the middle of the stage? Mm-hmm. What if the whole stage was a star drop? Like, no, okay, we're not going to do any of these things, but we're all going to think about what the important stuff we've learned from the actors' work so far tells us about how this works. And so then we produce okay. work together that way. Um, yeah, we've done some really successful shows that way. The Kalevala was one of them, for sure. Um, recently, we did a play about Elmer McCurdy. We're going to run out of time here. I'll tell you the Elmer <laughs> McCurdy story some other time. It doesn't need to be in the podcast. But it's we a good can always one. go like, through a giant just list. Just like somebody found in a book this wacky story about this worst criminal in the Wild West yeah. and all of the bizarre mishaps that happened to his body after he died. <laughs> And we made a play out of it with Sam Landman and Boo Seegerson and uh, I'll email you with the names of everybody else just so that we don't publish something that only has two of the eight cast members because I drew a blank. That's fine. We can. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's, so that's how devised theater works for us. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit for the design team, it can be a little bit choose your own adventure in terms of how much you can invest, how early in the process, but we try to avoid that, honestly. One thing I think that leads to is that we hire the same folks a lot, uh-huh. um, and that is proving to have other limitations, right? We're all learning about how uninclusive our super inclusive concept of art really has been all these years yeah right so like there's some ways in which we try to we try to weigh that and not always have the same team at the table um but i would say that that's my preferred way to make art at this point in my life and um and i take that into other rehearsal halls with me um you know my uh my least favorite introduction to a director is the director who says, you know, I'm one of those directors who really doesn't care about clothes. Oh no. Oh, you'd be amazed. There's a lot of them. Really? I don't really think about clothes. It's just not a thing I consider. Um, How? I don't and I usually understand. just ride that out the first time, but generally the second time we work together, there's some version of a, um, fasten your seatbelt. Cause I'm the designer who's going to make you care about clothes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I appreciate that you see yourself as being honest about your limitations. And I also, but I still need you to think about this. (laughs) Well, I need you to see it. I need you to see what's on offer. Yeah. But I'm again, I'm not working in a silo. I am. Yes. Making up clothes for imaginary people, but I'm not doing it by myself. Yeah. Um, I'm not doing it alone and I'm not, So this is another thing that I've had really a uh, meaningful conversation with Trevor Bowen about. There is no other discipline that relates to the actor who is telling the story the same way as a costume designer. Oh yes. Yeah, so and different. Even if we are, even when we are being professional and, um, it's not the way I want to say that. We are having conversations in the fitting room about how it's going in rehearsal and what they're learning about the play and what they're learning about the character that's informing what we can offer them to tell the story Yeah, in a way that no other discipline does. And that in turn is then a toolbox for the director to have 
at their disposal as well. And so that for me, that's where the frustration in, I don't really think about clothes comes from. It's like, well, I'm not going to make you decide if it's blue or if it's green, but I'm going to make you talk to me about why it might be either of those things. Yeah. It, it, that totally makes sense. Like, that seems crazy that someone would tell you that they don't think about that. But it's this similar to when I get a director who comes in and says, I would like to do the set from the Broadway version. I was like, well, then why did you hire me? <laughs> like, yeah, Not quite I the mean, exact same, happens, but you know. <laughs> that happens too, right? Where someone wants to replicate something they saw that affected them in a certain way. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think the thing about... It's it's surprisingly common. It's not an isolated incident that a director says or implies that, you know, uh-huh. or sort of like tries to keep a hands off because they're saying they don't know anything about it. Yeah. Um, and I used to think it was a compliment in a sort of left-handed way where they're like, well, I'm not going to pretend to know more about it than you do. You, We hired you for it. Um, and it's like, yeah, now that I've been at this for a while longer and I know how I want to work and how I don't want to work you hired me to interpret it. Mm-hmm. You didn't hire me to make it up by myself. Um, and sometimes, sometimes the show calls for, you know, more direct things in immediate research or like there's fewer big questions. Yeah. <clears throat> but, but there's always questions. Yeah, there's always something that you, or like, this scene, I have this person doing these five things. Right. They need to have a specific look, or... You can't do cartwheels while wearing a straw hat. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's super base, super mechanical, right? It can be super mechanical, or it can be super unicorn. Yeah. But it's, but again, it's an accordion. It's not a toggle switch. It's a rheostat. So yeah, how are we going to figure this out? Um, and again, in real time, with considerations for other designers and a timeline and a budget. And yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, I I think the, the other thing I just would want to know is, are there things that you would have wanted to either tell yourself when you were younger or say someone else who wants to do what you do? Um, are there things that would would have been helpful to know when you were the kid straight in out of grad school and stuff? <laughs> um, the kid straight out of grad school or undergrad, I guess. Depending I think on it's which about you're... so. Yeah, I would back up and I would say that going into a training program, whatever it ends up being. I needed to go to grad school. I also needed to not go directly to grad school after undergrad. This does not mean that this is how everybody should do it. I have a strong opinion about the latter, but it's not for everyone. Uh, But you should go into a training program and see it as a sandbox and see it as an experimentation place and see it as a way to take risks and stretch yourself and do a bunch of stuff you didn't know anything about before you started the training program. I was very concerned with um, doing it correctly and doing what I was being asked to do. And I didn't understand that those were three years where I was getting paid to do 
to take design risks. Like I wasn't going to pay to do yeah. any, whatever I want, but just from a design risk standpoint, I wish I had been less safe when I was in grad school. Okay. Yeah. And I think that then in turn, I wish, um, I wish that in those first years after grad school, I had understood better how I could define and bring my own boundaries around various things to the table. Like just around time and resources and things like that. But also just the beliefs that we bring about it. Um, like I have this aphorism I used to say to the students at Gustavus all the time, but I said it because we needed to hear it too. We do this out of love, right? On some level, no matter how much money you're making or not making or what other things you're doing or not doing to support yourself or how much of a hobby you might feel like it is. It is the thing you are doing because you love it. Uh -huh. So why do we give people permission to do it in a way we don't love? That makes us not love doing it. Like what yeah. that we do it out of love. How dare we not love doing it? Yeah. And I wish I had landed on that earlier. Um, I wish I had landed on the possibilities that that opens up earlier. Yeah. Like that's not limiting. I mean, it's limiting to this abusive work relationship or that abusive work relationship. But as an artist, that's incredibly freeing to me. And I wish that I had landed on that earlier. Is there anything else you would like to talk about today? Awesome. Well, thank you for coming and chatting with me. Yeah. I'm uh. super glad that we were able to find the time for this. Thank you for joining us for this episode of We Shadows. If you enjoyed it, please recommend it to your friends, colleagues, and students. If you loved it, like us on Facebook, and please hit the follow or subscribe button on your chosen podcast platform. We Shadows was created by Lieza Behrens, Rachel Lanto, and Anita Kelling. It was recorded over Zencaster and produced by Anita Kelling. Our theme music was composed and performed by J. William Kelsch. Special thanks go out to the wonderful folks at Technicians for Change. We Shadows can be found wherever you search for your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in this week, and be sure to check us out every Wednesday for new episodes.